0: Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Charlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking. No topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Future of Tech is produced by Mission and brought to you by Amdocs. In technology, everything is getting faster and the pace of change is more blistering than ever. As a result, technologists are in a constant state of optimization, trying to find the best ways to make their websites, apps, and back-end systems work 24-7. One of the ways they're doing that is through the use of low-code. Gone are the days of complicated legacy systems and custom code throughout every layer of your business. Instead, developers are leaning into the more efficient process of using low-code solutions to do everything from operating mobile apps to accomplishing legacy migrations and doing process automation. On this episode of Future of Tech, Paolo Rosado, the CEO of OutSystems, discusses with us what those low-code solutions look like and how they are being implemented in the real world. Plus, he explains how artificial intelligence and machine learning will be useful to developers in the future, and how AI might actually be doing some code writing on its own. And he predicts the future of low-code, and how much more penetration the low-code movement will have in the tech industry. Future of Tech is brought to you
1: by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs's R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs Technology page on LinkedIn.
2: So, welcome to a new episode of Future of Tech. Today, I'm uh, happy to introduce Paulo Rosado, who is the founder and CEO of uh, OutSystems. And today we're going to speak about low-code. Welcome, Paulo.
1: Thank you, Avisa. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a great podcast.
2: And um, we're going to discuss many, many items about uh, this domain, but maybe the first question that everybody is asking is, uh, what is low-code?
1: So low-code uh, was a term that was coined four or five years ago when a collection of companies started emerging, which had at the core of their uh, their approach to software development or to the creation of applications, the notion of uh, visual development or visual coding. And uh, there's a lot of other features related to, to low-code, but... Um, I remember that the, the term was coined by one of the top analysts at Forrester at the time. and uh, I remember going with him through discussions on whether the the term should be rapid application development and deployment, RAT2, or uh, we should use uh, uh, something that, that would give the notion that there is uh, very little code. We discussed the why not no code versus low code and and the likes and then he he, he selected low code and the the first wave came out and then later on that's all the
2: and the rest is history yeah exactly so walk me through the the basics so the concept is what to develop faster the concept is to uh not develop at all just uh, think about what you want and suddenly the code appears or what is it is like
1: so the concept is not uh, it's it's not rocket science uh, in its... Uh, in, when you think about it conceptually, right? So if you, if you look into what you need to do to do a particular application, for instance, for the enterprise, let's imagine a portal. You'd need to define the, the user interface. You need to define the, the back office, the logic. Probably there's a repository involved. There's some integrations, data that you need to to access to fulfill the screens and whatever. So there's a lot of components into into this type of uh, of applications. What um, the approach here is uh, from, the approach here is to take a particular type of domain and fundamentally, instead of doing that with uh, lower abstractions, like languages like uh, Java or JavaScript or C Sharp and 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 Dialects or frameworks on top of that, you kind of put everything together and you raise the abstraction of that language and you put, you, you fundamentally create a, a higher, well, what, what used to be called in theoretical computer science uh, domain specific languages. You actually raise the abstraction of the language up to a point where the, the elements that you're manipulating are now much higher level. And so now you have a screen as a concept instead of having like a variable or an expression or whatever. You still have those. But uh, you basically raise the, the the abstraction of the concepts, and by doing that, you have much less objects to manipulate, much less objects to compose. And, but in fact, what you're doing is you're, you're selecting a bunch of things and you're creating a specific language to address uh, a set of problems which is called domain. There's a trade-off into this. You, you can actually see these as, a, as almost like a spectrum, and then the problem is that as you as you raise the abstraction of the language, where the language becomes easier and easier. And so in, in terms of visual development, you start doing what, what used to take uh, uh, many lines of code, you start doing with three clicks or four clicks. Uh, the, the trade-off is that you do less. There's that, that's, that's very little power. The power decreases as you raise the abstraction. And, and that is the fundamental trade-off uh, that these, uh, these type of platforms need to play.
2: Yeah but the benefits would be I move much faster? Correct. In terms of the, the brain-dead benefits,
1: and, and what, what the, the main reason is, is, is fundamentally that you build very quickly, and the, also the cognitive load of entering these type of platforms is, very, is, is lower. And so you need a lot of no-code, the no-code movement, which got, got, got coined around very simple tools that are supposedly approachable or manipulatable by, by, by people that are inside business departments. That's very similar to what happened with a lot of other tool sets like Microsoft Access or Lotus Notes in the past. There's no difference really from that type of approach to, to this type of approach, but now these tools happen
2: to run on, on the cloud. Yeah. And... In your vision, do you see this as a step forward in terms of technology or the technology? So is this something that will take us forward because it's easier to do things? Or, as you said, in some cases, blocks us from doing exactly the, the things that we need? Oh, I think, uh,
1: I think it's inevitable that these type of platforms will tend to become a large percentage, if not the majority, of all software development, especially inside the enterprise, they started. the The idea was to be able to build something faster. But what's happening is that um, we at OutSystems we 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 strive a lot to get to these uh, to these other attributes that are important. It's this notion of not only building it fast, but uh, when you go very very fast. Uh, platforms like this allow you to put some guardrails, especially, for instance, in terms of scalability or security. And so if you design the platform correctly with the right set of abstractions, you can abstract things that usually would be called commodities or you want them to be there all the time, like a, like some, some form of security, security feature. It needs to be there in the platform whenever you develop code. You don't want to inject, or you don't want to, to 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 create that particular pattern that creates a vulnerability. And so, what we do, for instance, and, and, and it's similar to, to other platforms, is that by raising the abstraction, you remove the capability of creating an anti pattern from uh, a particular uh, developer. And therefore, in, sp- in spite the developer might know something about security, it doesn't need to. He doesn't need to worry about the fact that, inadvertently, he has put some form of uh, of anti-patterns there that either kill scalability or kill security or kill um, maintainability or other type of abilities that are usually part of the non-functional requirements of the apps that you're building. And then I think the bigger problem of all uh, that we're dealing today with the development of software it's actually the, the faster, the, the constant faster pace of aging and uh, of aging of software. Software is, is now aging faster than ever, which basically means that you create legacy at a faster pace that you've ever done in the past. And there's four, five, six reasons. Actually, there's about five reasons, five main reasons why you create legacy. But uh, one of them is knowledge transfer, is developers change and you, you lose you lose, uh, you, you get orphan code and no, uh, manuals are no longer uh, fancy and whatever. You cannot understand the code that was there. And, uh, and if you keep on accumulating backlog and you need to do a lot of changes, which happen today with a, with a lot of uh, applications because their constant software is constantly shifting, the technologies that you're using underneath support these things are, are changing. It used to be cool to do things in Java. Then three years ago, we started seeing the rise in Node.js, in JavaScript as the language for, for the cloud. We don't know what is going to be the future of technology moving forward. We, we, we simply, it's difficult three years down the line to understand what has become, what was a great trend that became a fad, and what is the new thing that's going to take over and last for the next few years. And so that technology turmoil is terrible for organizations, especially if they combine it with that aging cycle, that constant. Change management that creates technical debt. That uh, we've never seen technical debt being created at such high speed. And so, these platforms have the potential. Actually, it's one area, for instance, that we care very much about is how can we measure technical debt almost mathematically? And we try to lower it so that the cost that by paying a small technical debt tax, a very small technical debt, you, you never kind of hit the wall, an exponential curve where you have to replace the software so all these things are very important in this in the next 3 to 5 years as we see software taking over fundamentally being the the lifeblood
2: of every company who is doing digital transformation this is great stuff and and we'll uh, come back to it in a second i'd like to pause a bit and take you back in history and start and and, and ask you how did it all start so you're a young boy or when is the first time that you are touching technology and you're deciding that this is the direction you want to take?
1: I was actually a, a tinkerer, a maker, when I, was in, when I was a teenager. I had a, a workshop, and I, I did a lot of electronic type of projects. And I, I was going to, when I finished high school and applied to, uh, to university, I, I was lucky enough to have grades that were good enough to basically pick whenever I wanted to go. And I wanted to go to uh, electronics and, and take electronics. And at the last month, one of my professors told me software is the, is, is the future. Everything will be inside the chip and uh, software will take over. And that was a very insightful thing. This was in 83. Uh, and so that, that was a tremendously insightful advice. And, then, and in one month, I shifted and I, I went into computer science.
2: And do you still see software is taking over, or are you are? Uh...
1: Yeah, more and more. I mean, uh, it's uh, you know, it's there was a there, there was a spike about three, four years ago with AI. If software is taking over the world, AI is taking over software. You know, you get these type of sentences, and we 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 take that seriously. So we looked into the patterns, and it's 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 a different it's a different cycle. It's a, it's a different approach to things, but. Majorly, uh, we truly believe that software. Uh, I mean, what we're seeing is, is orders of magnitude more software being created than ever. In every 10 years, there's a, there's a couple of orders of magnitude of software being created. I mean, it's, it's
2: crazy. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. With this, I can definitely agree. You've mentioned earlier the phenomena like Lotus Notes and Microsoft Access, and you said that this phenomena is something that. The world has seen what's similar or in what way low-code is different that now is going to be widely adopted and, and, uh, as opposed to in the past being like something that uh, the world passed by.
1: First of all, I think the trade-offs, uh, we need to be careful because some of the trade-offs that kill a lot of these tools and uh, spell the demise of RAD tools, for instance, in the, in the beginning of the 90s, those, those trade-offs are still there. And it's important to recognize that um, I've always find it interesting that people who don't know history, the history of computer science, uh, because every 10 years, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of uh, cool kids that go and reinvent the world and they, they end up by creating something. There's always a, a disruption that's sufficiently uh, relevant to make it worthwhile retrying again. But the fact of the matter is a lot of these things repeat the same
2: mistakes. But the names are much cooler.
1: Yeah, the names are cooler, and and the logos are cooler, and uh, the communities are cooler. But um, so these tools that, uh, that that existed in the uh, in in the beginning of the eighties, a lot of it failed because of an understanding. I think it was a uh, several reasons. One of them was the lack of understanding that these tools, because of the nature, you need to. Be very, very careful in trying to, domain, to understand what is the domain of the things you can do. One of the problems with software is that uh, even if you buy a tool like Lotus Notes or Microsoft Access or the equivalent, the new cloud equivalents that, that exist, and you, and you build something, one out of five, and this is something that's almost intuitively over all these years, one out of five of these softwares tends to grow. So you, 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 you might start as a simple workflow or simple portal or simple this or that that grows in the edge of the organization inside the department. But again, one out of five of this software is going to become more mission-critical. It's going to get added more screens. It's going to be used by uh, 100 people. is going to suddenly, instead of five guys, now you have 1,000, and then scalability becomes an issue. And then it starts growing. You need to modularize it. And you start hitting all types of, uh, of walls and limitations in these tools because they were not built for that for the use case. But the fact of the matter is that software tends to grow. It's difficult to maintain its size because uh, when it's successful, you tend to accumulate backlog and people want to change it. And when you change it, you grow it a little bit. A lot of these tools had that problem of domain. But the thing that really uh, made them dead was that, for instance, in the, beginning of, uh, in the beginning of the 90s, you got two platform transformations, client server and then from client server to the web. And a lot of these tools did not survive those two changes in the underlying technology stack. The difference now is that, that's a, that actually, that's not the difference. That's a huge issue. So a lot of the platforms that are being built, they mix the runtime. They mix the underlying runtime of these platforms with the place where you do the visual modeling and the visual coding and the automation, that automation layer. That's one of the, one of the reasons why this is such a dangerous scenario. And that's why these platforms are so difficult to build. You actually need to separate the automation layer. Uh, the visual modeling layer, the, the layer that gives you that speed from the underlying runtime layer. Otherwise, you're stuck with a particular way of doing things like uh, these tools did with mainframes and then the next generation did with client servers and the next generation did with uh, with normal web instead of reactive web. You need to be able to find a way to replace the runtime layer that's generated or whatever. Whatever technology you use, we use a a compiler type of technology, but you need to separate the two so that you can replace one without having to force the developer to port all these applications to the new stack. Because otherwise you're not solving the problem, right? Yep. And so a lot of these platforms, uh, uh, one of the fundamental things is that, that one of the, the great attributes is the capacity to isolate the development layer from the, autom- from the automation layer, the modeling layer, from the runtime layer. And that, for instance, for all systems, we took that approach. It allows us to port our customers five times to different f- stacks as technology evolved without having them to write, rewrite these applications. And the applications became better, they became more performant, as we, we gave them more and more stuff, they suddenly migrated to the cloud with them, them having to make a change, but that's because we did that division.
2: Now, that's, that's tough to build. It's tough to build products like that, but the payoff is very good. So, maybe it's a good segue to, uh, for you giving us a few examples of projects of uh, either customers or use cases using low-code. Give me some examples so people can understand. You know uh, about where to use low code on on uh, maybe few a uh, few, few samples from the history of the company. So uh,
1: today we have thousands of uh, of customers and uh, installations, uh, and, and uh, we have more than twenty two industries. So over the years, we saw tens of thousands of projects. So what I'm going to give you is uh, is is kind of statistically relevant clusters uh, of things that are interesting. There's typically, there's three macro areas where software is developed internally. First one, and one that uh, that's relatively recent, is uh, customer experience transformation. And so these are customers that want to rebuild the way they talk with their partners or their customers. And uh, while before they probably had like a a customer portal or something that that's it now they want to rebuild that according to modern technologies like reactive web components and things like that as well as put a mobile and have a chatbot and 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 fundamentally having a, an approach to a journey of the customer instead of basically going about it with a particular technology or a touch point so uh, this is one that, this is probably the fastest rising area for us today is um, is portals, mobile apps, and uh, PWAs, progressive web apps, that are being used to fundamentally develop kind of once, but, but look at the journey of the customer as a, as a whole. The other area, which is uh, which which is probably the preferred area for a lot of local no code uh, tools, is um, is process automation or business optimization. And so you it's fundamentally and the use case here is uh, is you have system of records or, or cloud uh, providers that export APIs, and and because these systems are uh, are very difficult to parameterize, This is not like uh, the old days of SAP where you could go to the SAP and hack it from uh, top to bottom. In cloud products, products in the cloud are uh, have very low parameterization levels, and so they leave a lot of holes in terms of the final solutions when you look into an internal platform. And so here uh, we do very large number of mid to large applications that are typically composite, that integrate. On average, uh, a customer of ours integrates with 30-plus systems in the back office. So a lot of these systems that are being built are basically extensions of system of records, and they either put, rebuild Experience of the employee or whomever is the user, or they, they suck in data that's sitting around at the edge, usually in Excel spreadsheets or, or other types of forms, and centralize it immediately so that it becomes uh, governed, uh, it becomes part of the data lakes. It becomes... So it's a process of uh, a fundamentally automating, formalizing processes that are appearing between the gaps of these systems into applications. And a lot of workflow tool sets are used here also. There was a movement when the low-code category appeared. As some of the business process management players, which were kind of seeing the dead end, uh, uh, the end of um, of a process-centric approach, they relaunched themselves as low-code. And so today, low-code encompasses a lot of these uh, BPM tools. Um, and so workflows are also part of this. But, uh, uh, composite apps, uh, portals. The third area where we think where it's, it's relatively new, but uh, we, we're probably the only one playing in that particular use case is massive legacy migrations. We're talking, uh, and there's two kinds of legacy migrations. One is of uh, uh, tactical platforms like Lotus Notes or uh, uh, platforms, uh, workflow platforms that were used to build high volume low-complexity type of systems, or apps, workflows, and the likes. But the second one is really the rewrite of a system of records, of backend systems that were built 15, 20 years ago, sometimes bigger, or systems that, that were acquired but were heavily customized. And the, those systems today, the, the a lot of our customers Prospects that are looking into this use case—they have a lot of orphan code. They, they, these things are huge, huge amounts of legacy, right? They want to migrate to the cloud. They want to break it up so that it's a, it, it's now microservice architecture. They want to make it scalable. They want to they want to be able to actually flush the backlog because these systems have a huge backlog of changes for that's been sitting there for years, and so they want to. To move that to a CI/CD or DevOps type of uh, of, of paradigm where they can shuffle uh, that very quickly. So one one of the things that these platforms allow you to do is uh, is is we have a customer, for instance, that um, that change they the, uh, they build. They are an oil and gas terminal management company, and uh, they have about at the time they had 73 terminals around the world where they store the. They get the uh, oil and gas and they store it there, reservoirs, and then they have to manage the the trucks that take the the oil back to the refineries or the or the gas stations, depending on what is the state. And that's a very complex process. And they 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 tried to several times. They had several projects where they tried to build a terminal management system. That's exactly how it was called. First time they tried to do it traditionally, like building it in Chaff and whatever. And after a couple of years, they they cancel it. And then they try it the second time, and they, they, they cancel the project. And then the problem with this, this, these projects is when you're looking into a task of three to four to six years in some cases, and we have a lot of customers that have seen spending that they, in order to rewrite that, it takes about six years, between three to six years. Anything today that's above two years, it's already in danger of not being completed. Because the, the ratio of change of these systems while you're porting them or rewriting them is so fast that when you're done, you completely a legacy already. You have to rewrite it again. And so this is what we call the impossible projects. Now you're stuck with a bunch of code. You have a huge amount of intellectual property there. And there's no way for you to get rid of that. And so you start doing little things like putting stuff on top or whatever. But when you um, transform your customer experience layer and then your, your mid-layer uh, processes and the things in the middle, the last remaining thing that's hampering your speed and your capacity to innovate is your back office. Is these massive backend systems. They have a lot of processes. And so what we offer our customers, for instance, with low-code, and that's why I think local platforms that are built for serious applications they have a huge runway. They they are the way to go. Because when we go to a customer, like for instance, so they, they did that conversion. The first version was seven months, was in seven months. And they, they started going production in about 12 to 14 months. That's a huge compression from projects of four to five years to it's still a lot of time, but it's not feasible. It's now inside a, a time where the system that they're building is so quick to change that they can cope up even with the changes that occur during the project. And so this is a completely new paradigm.
2: Yeah, the manager that initiates the process still enjoys the fruits of, uh, of the process. Correct.
1: <laughs> Instead of being fired. Yeah, all living. Yeah, that, that's correct. So there's, there's tons. We have, uh, we have tons of customers that, are, that suddenly look into this and say, this is the fastest way for us to move out of this legacy. And because now these platforms allow you to rebuild this almost automatically, very fast, underneath there's the guarantee that you have a cloud-native type of uh, architecture. You you port it and for free you fundamentally, you, you immediately contain a base or you immediately cloud-native base. And so it's, uh, I think it's a great value proposition This. Uh, we're seeing a huge demand.
2: First, you must you must think it's a great value proposition. Otherwise, you won't be the CEO. But <laughs> <laughs> correct. But it took a while, right? It took. It's.
1: I think there's there's a perfect storm uh, coming in of understanding that it's very difficult to do this with traditional software uh, methods because the the complex things keep on getting more complex, and whenever there's a new framework or a new simplified way, a new service, there's another thing that comes along that stretches the curve of technology again. So you're constantly, constantly chasing this. And for organizations that uh, that have difficulty in hiring 3,000 top engineers in skills like a lot of the top brands, top digital brands do, I mean, this, this, these guys have to compete digitally, right? So what do they do? I mean, They have to fork they 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 can get really good people, but they cannot get three thousand. Can get, you know, hundreds maybe. But those hundreds need to produce like the thousands. So we need we need high productivity. We need to raise the the productivity level of this industry. Otherwise, a lot of
2: companies will not be able to compete digitally. So a follow-up question would be if you see bots and AI now coming in. And eventually software will be written by AI and bots.
1: We looked into the future about
2: four years ago uh, around that and we
1: we, we set it up one of uh, the top ten centers of uh, of research in AI machine learning for, uh, for for the domain of software development and so we, we wanted to understand what what does it take for what are the limitations of the technology and the like so if you if you think far enough it's it's very easy to go into this topic uh, uh, futures where software writes itself and, and, and things like that. We believe there's a, there's, there's a lot of stop gaps and where AI, like in almost every domain, can be extremely useful. And we're using it already. I mean, we're using it, we have been developing these models just because of the millions of application graphs that we have available. Anonymously, we have a lot of graphs, so we have a lot of applications. Our data sets are so huge that we can actually train these machine learning models with things that are much more powerful than what's being done, for instance, with normal code. But you can we we have been we're starting to get surprised with what the things these things can do. And so we have now the capacity to understand intent. And so when the developer is trying to do something we can see, based on particular type of, uh, of data sets and the structure of what, what, what it's doing, what does it want to do. Not only what it does it want to do next, which is a, which is a very, uh, how shall I say it? This is the typical example of AI in, the, in software development is what is the next function, or what is the next piece of code, or what is the next snippet. Um, we also do that. But uh, what is interesting is, trying, is, is you're starting to understand What is, in fact, the intention of of the developer? And when you understand that, you can actually train someone into saying, okay, if you want to do that, this is the best architecture, this is the best approach to do it. And so a lot of our approach today in terms of development, AI for development, is increasing these bots to a point where they become mentors. They just become guides. And, And that's a normal use of AI, which is an extension of a human being. And we are focusing on the things that are boring, that are grunt work, that are things that I don't want to do it. And so after a certain point, when we start detecting these patterns, we have several avenues to increase productivity. Either we let an AI do it automatically, or we raise the abstraction of the language. Uh, So we have all these things to control. But uh, the avenue is constantly trying to detect where can we help the developer become more productive, lower the cognitive load, uh, decrease the learning curve for this person to to learn something different. All of this can be done by uh, by having these bots work as mentors. So we'll see this again, like in every domain that AI is being used slowly with little things and things will become smarter. Whether the software is being used, for instance, already to correct uh, anti-patterns. And so when you see a pattern being always corrected in, for instance, in Git, there's already a bot that automatically detects similar patterns, anti-patterns and, and corrects them and, and publishes it, And so you get stuff like that, like uh, projects like that already uh, running. and so. The amount of stuff where you can have AI augment the continuous integration, continuous delivery, DevOps, the development, the business analysis, the creation of stories—all of these areas—you can augment them, not as a big bang, but here and there with AI. And things will get better and better and better. And these type of platforms are very well positioned to be able to integrate them because the because we control. The, the, the stack, in a way, we, we control the scope of the apps inside the domain. And so we can do
2: marvelous things with it. We, we, our bots are very smart. Do you see a future for enterprise using several low-code platforms? I think
1: that, that will happen. If not only because companies will, will try to get the best possible uh, platform for the, the job, I mean, we, we are probably the most general purpose platform that exists in the market, but a lot of our, our competitors are very narrow. They narrow the, the domain to do a particular type of use case fairly well. The moment you start narrowing the domain, that, this is an interesting aspect. And If you narrow, 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 you become a SaaS. It's very difficult to distinguish a SaaS with a back office to parameterize from a very narrow, low-code platform that's completely verticalized for something. And we have several uh, no-code, so-called no-code platforms that i have actually SAS, They became software-as-a-service uh, uh, companies. At least those will be available. We'll continue to, to see a lot of that. And, and I, think, I think a lot of no-code tools are very insidious. Uh, some platforms are very easy to get in, so they... they they take up the edge of the organization, but then they 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 have problems of continuing to grow. The the applications tend to be very small. Hit that wall that I described. These are usually, in our experience, something that decreases the the importance of this platform. So you need another one for other use
2: cases. So I think yeah, there will be will be several. What about security? Is this uh, an aspect that? Uh if I'm using a local code I should worry about, or is something that you take care of, or it's, you know, somewhere over the mountains? Yeah,
1: you know, there's a, it's, there's a huge opportunity of, uh, of solving the, I never say like 100% of security problems, but, uh, but a lot of the issues of security. But at the same time, if you don't do it well, then you don't. There's no alternative, really. So, the, so one of the things we that I think it's very interesting about local platforms and the way we see it ourselves at OutSystems is one of these ways. Is because you're you're separating uh, the development layer from the the compiler and the translator layers and then the runtimes. Whenever you, um, for instance, in our case, we generate standard code as if it was written by a top computer sized hacker, a great developer. And so um, you can actually peel off the full out systems platform and underneath there is a standard application that with source code and whatever you 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 can put the source code in Git and, and, and all of that. So a lot of our customers what they do is because they like that, because now they can run their code swiping tools, for instance, uh, on top of the code that we generate. And we've had, we welcome that because we've had, um, we've had some, uh, some customers that have such tight security practices that they run white hat processes, penetration, pen tests, and, uh, and the vulnerability testing in such a, a sophisticated way. And they give, a, then they send us, like there was one customer, a particular one that I remember, send us a report with 80 non compliances. Um, so when we, we went through those 18 compliances and 76 was, were false positives, which are good indications because if our code is indicating that's a false positive, we probably need to generate it differently. And so that's what we did. But the other four were real. They were not big vulnerabilities, but they were vulnerabilities. And those guys had caught those. So what we did is we issue a patch for the platform the customer fundamentally republished the platform, so everything gets retranslated and recompiled and whatever, then they run the pen test and they got zero non-compliances. So without writing the app, these customers, just by trusting that the vendor has sufficient number of customers and sufficient number of pen tests being done, that statistically, the type of offer that it provides, is going to be an offer that's highly secure. And so these platforms like the OutSystems one can be uh, built as as the most secure things that you can run on just because of the nature of the fact that uh, the detection is a crowd detection, but the process of correction is in one place, just a platform. You don't need to change all the apps. So our customers today that uh, that have... uh, that are smaller companies, mid mark companies, they have security grades of uh, the top financial <laughs> institutions because those ones are the ones that give us the benchmark for the security level of our platform.
2: Now, walk me through the following scenario. I'm a CIO or a CEO, or just listen to this podcast. I was very impressed from uh, this low-code uh, phenomena and I want to uh, play with it a bit, and I want to understand what do I need to do in order to, uh, to start. So, what are the first steps? The first steps?
1: Well, usually what, uh, what our customers do is that the uh, CIOs, they, they, get, they go to, to our website, and, uh, or they, they download some of the third-party uh, content that exists a lot on the, on the Internet, and they try to understand exactly what these things are, who are the players, what are the differentiators and and so forth. Typically what we have is we have a a tremendous amount of enterprise architects, central ITs, senior developers coming and evaluating this type of technology because one of the things that they, and they do it it well, that you have to do that. One of the things that um, someone who's using a platform like this strategically, they're going to be using this for the next years, right? And they want to make sure that the process of evolving the platform so that the platform doesn't get stuck in time is very, very important. And so they want to evaluate that. So the, the, the level of evaluations on architecture, express, especially expressiveness of the no-code portion of the platform, very, very important. Another uh, aspect that, this, that uh, for instance, our platform has is that it integrates already the DevOps cycle. It's very, very important that you, that you support, in a way, you support DevOps, so that it's not only fast to build, but it's fast also to change, because everything is an exercise in change anyway. And so all of these, uh, you can try it. We have a free version uh, online. It's very easy to set up a trial but uh, usually it's a combination of trying to do something very difficult and seeing where where is the limits of these platforms and we usually nail it
2: so okay now you've mentioned 22 different industries but probably you're also working with different uh, companies around the globe is there a different behavior when it comes to a low code and culture no
1: not really i think the the I think the world has globalized itself to a point where we see companies that are that that are adopting low code are typically fast they're not the top zero point zero one percent. Those ones can have like ten thousand engineers, top engineers and, and build stuff but but the tier below, they are forward looking. And because they're forward looking, they see the writing on the wall. And so uh, a lot of these companies are adopting. These are companies that are immensely savvy from a technology point of view, but they, do, but they have a, a backlog, they, they have a lot of open positions uh, in, the, in their rooms. And, and so they're looking into these platforms immediately as a way let's get more productive. And then they realize that they get faster and more competitive. It's inevitable that everyone. Is, is
2: fundamentally jumping on this bandwagon. Generally speaking, if you look into the future, what are the main things that you believe are coming or heading our way when it comes to uh, those platforms? What are the new directions that we should uh, look for?
1: I think we're, we are in a, in a time when there's a hype around uh, a lot of these platforms. So we're going going to go through we're going to go through a shroud of uh, when people start realizing there's a trade-off uh, for uh, uh, there's a trade-off for these platforms and that trade-off so th- these are not some of these platforms are not silver bullets at the same time, I think there's a huge opportunity if you look into the problem correctly, not just from a narrow point of view like uh, oh I'm going to build workflows with low code or i'm going to." build like uh, little tools for the departments and whatever, but you look into it from a, a serious piece of your arsenal that you're using into your software development strategy. And, uh, and you can, and, and you integrate these platforms together with other things that you're doing with other tools, with other tool sets and, and that are appropriate. This is a tremendous booster for, for a lot of, uh, use cases. And so we're betting, uh, I mean, this is, uh, that's where we're investing uh, a lot in the in the next phase of what uh, we believe our platform need to be. In the next three years, this is going to be very different. We believe the market is going to be very different than the one that exists today. And we're already betting on the next wave. But these platforms will continue to go a lot. There's too much software to be built, too little. <laughs> There's no time <laughs> and not enough resources. And so it's... Uh, these platforms are are here to stay and to and to grow and and, and bigger companies like ours take advantage of the fact that we have uh, we have been around we have uh, a lot of knowledge we can use that knowledge for instance to to build this uh, to improve our ai capabilities but not only that is we know what are the pitfalls of these things we've done a lot of errors we correct them so this next wave will go through those errors they will Customers will be disappointed. And, uh, and so it's, um, it's a bright future because more customers, more enterprises will become software developers than ever. There's, almost, there's a reason why developers are now at the center of the world in, in technology. And that's because everyone is becoming a cloud software developer and they need to build their own software. And this has never happened at, at such a rate. Today.
2: well, I'd like to end uh, up with a personal question. We've, we've asked you earlier about the uh, decision to go into technology and software. So, a few years after you took that decision, are you happy today? Are you satisfied from the decision you've made? Absolutely. <laughs> I was very lucky.
1: I've been very, very lucky because uh, I've always liked to liked work with uh, with people that that innovate, with smart people, and uh, I I've been very lucky because I've worked with, with some of the smartest people that I in the world that I know, not only at school but also at at systems and uh, at my previous companies. I think, tech, um, I mean, technology can be uh, in in a way it poses a, a puzzle. It forces you as a CEO to look a little bit into the future, but then to create a path towards execution. And it changes. It's always at the front, at the front of the change ratio. I mean, the, the, these technologies, this area, and you know it, Avisha, it's uh, this sector is the one that changes the most faster and always first. And then all the other sectors kind of follow. And, to, and today I feel very grateful because, uh, just yesterday, I was, I was talking with the CIO of one of the largest 30 companies in the world. And the type of stuff that I learned in that one hour, uh, they are a customer of ours we are discussing how can, how can we use OutSystems uh, more and the likes. But he was telling me about things that, he, that he's planning to do that I've never thought about, that I would never dream. And that already gave me a good buzz for the day. It's this type of uh, seeing the customers doing amazing things and uh, learning and uh, together, it's been a good life, definitely. Good professional life, good personal life also.
2: Great. Well, it was a pleasure having you and understanding uh, a bit more uh, this uh, fascinating domain of low-code, no-code. Thank you for uh, joining me and uh, hopefully we'll meet next time face-to-face
1: thank you abishai looking forward to meeting face-to-face thanks for listening to future of tech if you like what you heard and want more make sure to subscribe on apple podcast or your favorite podcast app And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Charlin, directly
2: on LinkedIn.